Okay, Acts 2. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Hey, good morning. Peace be with you. Really good to see you. Welcome to Trinity, especially if this is your first time. We're really glad you're here. Really glad you are with us. Hope you're having a great weekend, especially if you have school-age kids. It is a five-and-a-half-day weekend, and so we hope you are hanging in there. Lord, have mercy. (laughs) Let me uh, pray for us, and then we'll get into God's Word together. Father God, it is so good to draw near to you. We know that when we draw near, you draw near to us. We know that you are always with us, always among us, always filling us by your Spirit. And yet certain times we feel your presence manifest in a more powerful and a more pointed way. And and I feel that even now as we lift our voices in prayer and in singing to you as we greet one another. Lord, we just want more of your presence right now. Would you saturate this room and this service with your glory and your power and your love? Lord, as we look at your your gospel this morning, such a a profound message of good news to us, it's 
also a message that has possibly become really familiar to us. And so, Lord, we, we pray that you would pour out some new knowledge, a deeper understanding, a, a greater appreciation, a deeper internalization of your word and your good news to us this morning. Lord, I know for certain that we have come from all different places and gathered in here this morning, some who are full of life and full of joy and full of peace and just hungry to hear from your word. Lord, would you feed and fill them? And yet, Lord, there are some who have come in just, just broken, hurting, on the verge of tears, feeling like they could collapse at any minute. Lord, would you pour out your spirit of peace and of comfort into their hearts even now? Lord, how often when we gather on Sunday mornings, we just feel a little cold on the inside, a little rough around the edges. There might even be some, some conflict between friends in the room, conflict between spouses. Lord, would you warm our hearts this morning? May we be reminded of of our total need and dependence on you this morning. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, come. Fill this place even now. Let us know and feel your presence with us. Father, pour out your love in this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, um, well, some of you know I uh, love to read. I'm a big reader. I read uh, just all sorts of genres all across the board all the time. And one of the things that I've gotten into lately, uh, this website Medium, if you've heard of it, it's a place where uh, anyone can write. You can submit your writing. Other writers kind of collaborate on it. It's like Twitter, but people still have their souls. Uh, a little bit longer form, more nuanced version. Um, but it really has some fascinating articles and you read on these different channels. And I love reading on productivity and reading on uh, is kind of startup in the business world. And uh, there's this thing, I don't know if you've ever uh, picked up on this, some of you have, I like to call it hustle culture. And hustle culture in a nutshell, uh, here's the message, wake up at 4.30 in the morning. CrossFit for two hours, eat a healthy breakfast, attack the day. All right, be your own boss, work for no one, grind, hustle, get it done, always be closing, <laughs> hustle, prove yourself. Now, there are a lot of Christian writers in these spaces and churches I've noticed have even started to adopt some of this. You know, wherever there's something good, there's a Christian version of it sooner or later that's slightly lower quality. And so Christian hustle <laughs> culture it sounds like this, wake up at, you know, 5 a.m., not too early. Two hours of Bible study, you know, crossfit your soul. Have a, a, a breakfast with your perfect family, perfect spouse, perfect kids. Take them to school, Christian school. Go to work, do meaningful, redemptive work. Read theology, listen to podcasts, hustle, grind, pray for a few minutes, but get it done. Live your life for God, serve, give, prove yourself. That's interesting, isn't it? There's, there's something deep within our shared humanity where even in Christ, we feel the need to prove ourselves to one another. We will even compete and try to win at the Bible and grace. 
we find ourselves presenting ourselves in a certain way. We find ourselves defensive when somebody is critical of us. We find ourselves critical of other people. All of it trying to show the best versions of ourselves and hide the worst versions of ourselves. A question I was thinking about this week, if strangers came and, and they, they knew nothing of us, our culture, our religion, and they looked at our lives from the outside for a few weeks. They looked at how we spend our time, how we spend our money, who we spend time with, the words that we use. What would they deduce about Christianity? Would they say it's a, it's a set of doctrines that makes us smarter and more put together? Would they say it's a great social club where everybody's nice and, and, and non-demanding? Would they say that Christianity is, is a form of, of personal improvement like this key to an already perfect life that we've managed to pull off? What would they say about us? We need a true and better way. We need the way of Jesus. We need the gospel. Not the prove yourself gospel, not the moral improvement gospel, not the, you know, lipstick and show muscles Instagram gospel, but the true and living gospel. The death to life gospel. The broken made whole gospel. The garden of Eden to the new city of God gospel. The bloody cross gospel, the empty tomb, resurrected, ascended Lord gospel, the Holy Spirit gospel. We need the true and living gospel. We're spending five, six, maybe months in the book of Acts. And I've said before that 30% of the entire content of Acts, like 500 some verses, is just people proclaiming the gospel. So it'll say Peter stood up, Paul stood up, Stephen, Apollos, whoever it was, stood up, and then it'll just be 40 verses or 70 verses of gospel proclamation. And the writer, Luke, he knows what he's doing. He's a good writer. He understands literature. He could have said every time this happens that they just preach the gospel, look back to page two if you're not familiar with it. But he doesn't do that. He gives us the entire thing again and again and again, why does he do that? Does he want it just beaten into our brains? Does he want it just memorized word for word? I'm convinced the way that he shares it, the way that it's shared in all these different contexts, it's as if Luke knows that we need the gospel poured into our lives over and over and over, every single day. And so this morning is straight gospel. That's the whole message this morning. I want to look at what it is, how to respond, and then what it produces. So first, what the gospel is. Look at the beginning of our passage, verse 22. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Every time the gospel is preached in Acts, there are these three themes. Sometimes there's more, but there are always these three themes, death, resurrection, and grace. It always begins with death, the death of our Lord. 
We remember the story, Acts, as it describes the gospel here. The first word out of Peter's mouth is Jesus. The gospel begins with the life of Jesus, this perfect life that he lived. The three years that he was in ministry, the healing that he did, the incredible teaching that he did, the authority that they recognized in him as the Son of God. And yet the religious leaders, they plotted against him. They were moved by jealousy and they rejected his authority until they sought to kill him. Judas Iscariot, one of his own friends and chosen disciples, sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. He was moved by greed, rejecting Jesus' humility. In the middle of the night in the Garden of Gethsemane, soldiers came with their torches and their weapons to arrest Jesus. And when they said, who is Jesus? And Jesus simply said, I am he. They were all floored. They fell back and landed on the ground. I imagine them getting up and getting their swords and relighting their torches, straightening up their armor and saying, we're here to arrest Jesus, if that's all right, you know. And so he was put on trial before Roman and Jewish leaders. They found nothing worthy of death, and yet they sentenced him to an immediate death anyway. They were moved by fear, by a clinging to their power. They wanted popularity. And so they turned Jesus over to the crowds who were screaming, who were gnashing their teeth at Jesus, who were moved by a pure and a deep anger, finding a moment of power in an otherwise powerless life. And so as Jesus went by and they laid a cross on his back, they took off their belts and they whipped him and beat him, mocked him and scorned him. And so Jesus carried his cross as far as he could. Then he was nailed to the cross and his wrists and his feet. And they hoisted the cross up between two thieves All before lunchtime, he was dragged, put on the cross, lifted into the air. And every word out of his mouth from the cross is words of forgiveness, words of love, words of peace, words of recommitting himself to the Father. His own disciples denied him. They all fled from him. They were moved by fear. When he was ready to give up his spirit, he cried out in a loud voice, It is finished. And when he did so, and when he breathed his last, the gospels say that for three hours, darkness covered the land. There was an earthquake that shook the whole area. Amidst the darkness, dead people rose from their tombs and entered the city. It was total chaos. It was as if creation was crying out in disbelief that its creator, its maker, its Lord was falling into death. A Roman centurion said what everybody was beginning to realize, surely this man was the son of God. And do you notice who's responsible for Jesus' death? It was the religious leaders, It was Judas, it was Herod, it was Pilate, it was the Romans, it was the Jews, it was the disciples that fled. See, nobody stayed with Jesus. There was nobody at the cross with him. 
It was everyone. It was all of us. The point that the gospel writers want to show us by showing that, that nobody remained with him in his moment of greatest need is that we were all responsible for his death. Every single one of us, for whatever reason, we would have fled and left him to die alone, just like they did. There are no heroes at Calvary. The point of verse 23 is to show that Jesus' death was 100% part of God's sovereign plan. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. This was the plan from the very beginning. And yet the verse continues, And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And so it was 100% God's plan and 100% our responsibility. And so Jesus breathed his last. He gave up his life. He entered into death. After some time, his body was taken down and he was buried. They found the biggest stone they could and rolled it in front of his gravesite, put armed Roman soldiers in front of it. You know, if the gospel is to be the answer to our deepest problems, if the gospels are hope for the deepest brokenness in our lives, it must do business with death. Death is our one true great enemy. The thing that hangs over us at all times. Death is not merely the end of our lives. It's, it's a cloud that hovers above us through all of life. And Jesus was put to death. He entered into death. I don't know if you've ever had this dream, this nightmare, where you come home one day from work and you open the front door and you see all your friends are there. 20 or 30 people are there. Friends, family members, everybody's gathered there waiting for you. But there's no celebration. There's no surprise. There's no presence. They're like, we've been waiting to talk to you. We've all been talking to each other for a good time now. We don't like you. We've had enough. We've figured you out. Your little charade is over. It doesn't, it doesn't fool us. And we've all agreed, every last one of us, we're all abandoning you completely. And the rest of your life, you will be alone and you will die alone. I don't know if this is just my nightmare. <laughs> there is nothing worse than total rejection, total abandonment by those that we love, those that we think we can trust, and yet that's exactly what Jesus experienced on the cross. Every last person left, left him alone, left him for dead. And so death is this awful, brutal reality of life in a broken world. And it hovers over all of our life. There's this commercial that's been on the last few weeks in sports games. There's a, a car that's speeding down an alleyway and a, a man who's getting off work and he's stepping out from behind something and he doesn't see the car coming. And the assumption is that he gets hit by this car going at great speed. And so it shows this man's boss saying he was our best guy. I don't know how we're going to live without him. It shows his friends crying, saying he was the best friend. It shows his wife holding a little newborn daughter on her knee, saying this was our husband and now he's gone. And then it cuts back to the scene and it's like the automatic brakes kick in and the guy doesn't get hit, you know, and then it flashes back and everybody's happy and it's like, Dang it, Honda. 
Don't make me cry when I'm watching football. (laughs) Even in commercials, even in marketing, they're touching something so deep in us, this fear of death. Realizing that one death doesn't just affect that person, it affects all of their relationships, it affects all of us. It's a cloud that hangs over our lives. There's a scholar on the Proverbs that says that in in the Proverbs, death is a whole realm in conflict with life. Rather than a single and merely physical event, death throws its shadow over the living. Death is part of the curse that Adam and Eve brought on us all when they sinned against God in the very beginning. They were acting as our representatives. We know that we would have done the exact same thing as them but now we are under a curse of death. We live in a death-haunted world. Our relationships are death-haunted. Conflict in our marriages, between our spouses, between our parents and our children, among our friends, with our coworkers, we have death-haunted relationships. Our bodies are haunted by death, slowly moving closer and closer and closer towards death. Our work is death haunted. Our earth is death haunted. Our planet groans with tornadoes and hurricanes and tsunamis claiming thousands of lives every year. Everything is haunted by death. It's the curse. And the first and most difficult truth of the gospel in Acts is that we too are dead in sin. We see it explicitly in Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. If the gospel is the answer to all of our problems, it has to do business with death. It can't just go around it. It has to go through it. Jesus sunk into death The penalty of our sin, Romans 6, says, is death. In the Old Testament and the New, there is no forgiveness without bloodshed. And so Christ descended into death to conquer it from within. Verse 24, but God. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Verse 32, God raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and he has poured out what you now see and hear. The Holy Spirit is at rest on all of them. Now we get the good news after the description of death, the awareness that death hangs over all of life. There's a better word. But God raised this Jesus to life. There's nothing like this anywhere else in the universe. No one is raised to de- from the dead never to die again. But Jesus was raised, raised by the Holy Spirit of God because God has authority over life and death. Raised because Jesus was too powerful for death. It could not hold on to him. He's too slippery. He's too powerful. He exceeds the grasp of death it simply cannot hold on to him 
And after some time on earth, he ascended into heaven, exalted at the right hand of God, reigning over all his creation and pouring out his spirit on us, the church. It's interesting that this theme of life after death and life through death, a resurrection, it shows up in, in so many places in our culture. It's in our, in our books, you know, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia. We see the resurrection theme in so many of our, our movies from Batman to Beauty and the Beast to Avengers to like eight out of ten Fast and Furious movies. It's in our music from Handel's Messiah to Kanye West, all of the lights. It's everywhere. There's this desire deep within us for life through death. And that's the good news. That the gospel has indeed dealt with death, that Jesus has gone into the very center of it. He's blown it up from the inside. He's conquered it from within. He's taken this curse and he's not only reversed it, but he's turned it into a blessing. If you remember the hymn from Christmas, Isaac Watts, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And what gets even better is that we too are raised to new life. It's not just Jesus that's raised, it's we too who are raised to new life. In Ephesians 2, it says, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in sin. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. This new life connected to God, one with the Lord Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, this eternal life, it begins the moment that we believe in Christ. The most profound transformation of our being doesn't take place when we die, doesn't take place when Jesus comes back. It takes place the moment we believe in Christ and are filled with his Holy Spirit. Eternal life has already begun. We have been raised and joined to Christ. And once again, it gets even better because Jesus is coming back again to wipe out once and for all, all of death, to crush it forever, to, to announce victory over Satan and sin and death. All of it will be a distant memory. That's our future, our hope, our gospel. Death and resurrection. And like those original hearers in verse 37, it says, When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, What shall we do? What is the proper response to death and resurrection? And the answer is always grace. Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off for all whom the Lord our God will call. This is the grace of God for every one of us. However near or far, Jew and Gentile, no matter our background, no matter our gender, no matter the amount of money in our bank account, the number of followers we have on social media, 
anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved totally by grace. Paul says it's a, it's a gift, a gift of salvation. Grace, the Latin is gratis, gift. It's a gift that we simply receive and open up. In the Greek, the word is, is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. It's the place that we get our word charity. From the greater to the lesser, God to man gives us this gift. There's nothing we can do to earn or achieve it. We simply receive it. A passage in Ephesians 2, it ends like this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The gospel is the announcement of life with God, restored to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it comes to us entirely by grace. I'll say it again. The gospel is life with God restored to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and it comes to us totally by grace. The gospel of grace is so much better than the gospel of hustle culture, the gospel of prove yourself, the gospel of try harder, the gospel of get it together, get it right, pull yourself up. Total acceptance, complete forgiveness. It's only available here in Christ. And so how do we respond? Peter said, repent and be baptized. Throughout Acts, there's, the, there's this one first step in response to the gospel. And the first step is to repent, to believe in Jesus, to receive the Holy Spirit, be baptized, and join a local church. Like that sounds like five steps. In Acts, it's one step. Repent, believe, receive the Holy Spirit, be baptized, join a local church. It's always one step in Acts. Repent, turn from your old ways, turn from your sin. Rethink your thinking, commit your mind and your heart to the Lord. Believe in Jesus, put all your hope, all your trust, all your life in him. Be filled with the Holy Spirit the moment you are converted the moment you turn your eyes to Jesus he pours out his spirit into your heart be baptized every time somebody comes to faith in the new testament immediately they are immersed in water and baptized this beautiful symbol and a and a participation in the death of Christ buried below the water and resurrected back out of the water in newness of life and then every time somebody comes to Christ they join a church and so repent, believe, be baptized, be filled with the Holy Spirit, join a church. Now, if you said, I, I, I've done all these things, what, how do I respond to the gospel today? We'll mostly look at that another time in another one of these gospel passages. But really simply, I just want to say today, what would it look like for you to meditate on the gospel every single day? Just once a day, what it would look like to, to set your mind on the gospel of grace. Whether it's, it's at home early in the day with your Bible open or if you're too busy, you get caught up in the day just driving to work or wherever you're going. To say, okay, what's, what's true about me? What's true about who I am in Christ? I don't have to prove myself. I don't have to defend myself. I have nothing to show, nothing to demonstrate. I am safe. I am secure. 
I can rest in this gospel. I am loved. What would it look like to meditate on that gospel just once every day? And so the last thing, the gospel, what it produces. I could end with with what we must do and, and give you a list of things to do. We might even be salivating for that like Pavlov's dogs. Just tell me something to do but I want to end instead with what happens to us. What becomes of us when the gospel really takes root in our lives? Even here, I could say all sorts of things. I had three things originally. I'm going to just give you one. What the gospel produces is humility. Nothing crucifies our pride like Christ crucified. There is no room for for self-confidence and self-righteousness, for the, for the one-upsmanship that we do, for the defending ourselves and the being critical of others, to thinking we're self-sufficient, to promoting ourselves. We can't do any of that when we see that we were completely dead in sin, that our, our condition required the death of another person in our place. And even then, it's not like Jesus said, okay, I've got room for half of you, and so, you know, I'll take the better half, of course, so figure it out, get on the good side, and then you'll have a home. No, even then, it's entirely by grace. Everything we have, everything we are given, this salvation, it is entirely a gift. If you've ever been around a, a kid who's, you know, in a family with some money, our, our kids go to a, a public school, but it's down in the southwest part of town. So there's some families with some real money down there, or at least real credit card debt. I don't know if they have money, but they got a lot of debt. And so often we'll be talking with some of their friends. Uh, and, you know, this little kid's like bragging about his shoes or bragging about, you know, his allowance is $80 a week or his video games or whatever it is. And you just want to look at this kid and be like, little punk, Well, you don't say it, but you think it. (laughs) Little punk, you have nothing that hasn't been given to you from above. Like you can't be home alone for five minutes. You'll have an emotional seizure, but you're bragging about the things that you have and your riches because of this family that you're in. In the same way, we have absolutely nothing to brag about because everything we have is a gift from above. Lay down your privilege. Let go of your pride. Accept anything that brings about your humility. It's a hard word, but accept anything that brings about your humility. If somebody insults you, receive it. If somebody is critical of you, look to where it's true, even if some of it, even if most of it isn't. If you see dirty work that needs doing, be the first one there. If your good work and your good deeds go unnoticed, if you are looked over, passed by, if you are left out, if you are neglected, if you are betrayed, now you're getting in touch with the life of Jesus. If you are confronted with brutal suffering, you don't have to enjoy it, you don't have to thank God for the suffering, but consider what God can do through it. Thank God that he is with you in the pain, in the darkness. Accept anything that brings about your humility. One of my favorite favorite quotes, I, I probably share it too much, Mother Teresa. She said, choose always the hardest thing. 
the thing I've noticed about the humility that I see in, in the lives of my friends and people I look up to, some of you folks here, some of my mentors far away. Humility enables sacrifice and it produces rest. Humility enables sacrifice. It, it shows us that we are, we are low enough to go and do the work. It shows us to be humble, to give our life away, to sacrifice for the good of others, to sacrifice for the kingdom, to give it all away. Humility enables us to sacrifice just as Christ sacrificed. And yet true humility also produces rest. And so if you're never worn out, the gospel has not yet taken root in your heart and you need to give your life away. And yet if you're always worn out, the gospel has not taken root in your heart yet either. And you need to receive the rest that is available to you in Christ. You can lay down all this work, all this doing, all the hurry and busyness. You have nothing to prove. I don't know if you caught it, but Peter in this sermon in Acts 2, he quotes Psalm 16 at length. It almost feels like it doesn't fit, but he says, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. To the message of life with God, it's a message and a promise of rest. Rest from our anxious and, and frantic activity. Rest from having to be the, the perfect person, to demonstrate the perfect life, to have it all together, to pull ourselves up all the time. There's an old hymn that says, Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in Him, in Him alone, gloriously complete. For me, the gospel has become more real to me every year as I've been in Christ. As I've lost loved ones and faced suffering, felt the grief and the pain of life, I remember that Christ knows the darkness better than anyone. He knows death better than anyone because he has been there, he's tasted it. Feeling depression, feeling the weight of, of life and, and just the brokenness of our world, the gospel reminds me that Jesus was plunged into this ultimate darkness so that I never will have to be. That even in those dark places, Christ is with me still. In the anxiousness and the fear and the worry of life, the gospel reminds me it doesn't matter what others think of me, what they say of me, whether I get credit, whether I'm wrongly accused or blamed. Christ has experienced all of that. He's experienced the total abandonment, the complete rejection. And friends who have hurt me or people that I trusted that let me down, I remember that I am no better and I've done the same to other people. The, the hustle culture, the, the try harder gospel, it just won't do. Eventually, it'll fail. We'll fail or we'll just become bitter and angry and worn out we need the true and better gospel the gospel of grace the life through death gospel the humility producing gospel 
We need the blood on the cross gospel, the empty tomb, stone rolled back gospel. The pour your hearts out like water to the living God gospel. The real thing, pure gospel, straight gospel, undiluted, untamed, 200 proof gospel. The staggering in the streets, overwhelmed by the grace of God gospel. Nothing else will do. Nothing else will produce change and life in us. We need the real thing and we need all of it. We need it to sink into the deepest places of our hearts and to do the real work that we need. We were dead in sin, but death cannot hold us down when Christ takes our hand. Let's pray.